Welcome to the Everything Music Ed podcast. I'm your host, Tom Borning. In this podcast, we'll hear from educators, performing musicians, composers, conductors, and others about their experiences in learning, teaching, and performing music. Please follow us on Facebook and Instagram to find out about upcoming episodes, and be sure to subscribe, follow, and rate the podcast on whatever platform you get your podcasts. If you have any questions, suggestions, or you just want to tell me about how silky smooth my voice is, or you have any show ideas, please feel free to email me at everythingmusiced at gmail.com. Today we talk with Dr. Rhoda Bernard from the Berkeley School of Music. Dr. Bernard is the Managing Director of the Berkeley Institute for Accessible Arts Education. We talk about her many roles as a collegiate professor and how the Berkeley Institute for Accessible Arts Education came to be. Dr. Bernard also offers up some suggestions to music teachers and how they would make their class more accessible. And she also tells us about some online resources to help us all make our classrooms more accessible for kids learning music. You are an ageless wonder. Ha! No, no, no. Um, birthday's coming. We don't want to discuss. <laughs> but thank you. <laughs> uh, you look the same. You look the same from like the first day I met you. Uh, like seriously, uh, it's have crazy. You had your eyes checked. <laughs> thank you. That's very kind. I I do use readers now, but uh, I actually uh, my my eyesight for this is. Primo, so. Well, thank you. Um, You know, we try, but, you know, I always just say consider the alternative, right? I mean, I'm happy to be living another year. So I'm here with Rhoda, Dr. Rhoda Bernard. Um, Thank you very much for being on here. Can you tell me a little bit about what you remember about early music education when you were a kid? So the music education that I received when I was a kid? Correct. And you're interested in what happened in school or in life or both? Yep. Okay. <laughs> so, sure, yeah. That's... Um, in school, it was pretty bare bones. Um, I grew up in a town about 12 miles south of Boston, uh, and it was, you know, once a week general music, and then in fourth grade... We got to pick chorus or band, and I picked chorus, um, and uh, got to sing a lot of solos right away. I was doing a lot of um, solo singing and performing um, as a soloist in chorus right away. But in elementary school, it was once a week, you know, 30 minutes, and maybe chorus meant once a week outside of that. Um, Not much at all. In addition to that, somewhere around the age of eight or nine, I started piano lessons, um, which was great. Once a week, I loved it. And I didn't start voice lessons until I was 12. I started voice lessons when I was 12. 
Is that early enough? You want more? How far do I go? Yeah, no, yeah, no, that's that's good. And now I and then so now let's let's fast forward a little bit. So you get to high school, you're in high school chorus, I assume. And well, then we got to back so up. When, oh, okay. We got to back up. Um, so if we're going to high school, we got to back up because we got to deal with proposition. Yeah, bring me bring me bring me through public school K through 12. Well, we have to deal with proposition two and a half, which is a big deal in my Ouchie. for the first time when I was walking into high school. So that matters a lot. So in middle school, um, it was called junior high back then. Um, I did districts and SEMSBA auditions and participated in those festivals and great opportunities. I did um, chorus. Um, all that time, and I was taking piano all that time. Um, so loved all of that. Was singing a lot of solos and chorus concerts, and um, was really the center of my social life too. Um, so I was a, a chorus geek, very much so in middle school. And then high school comes along, and Proposition Two and a Half went into effect right as I was walking into high school. And the high school in my town was well known for a strong music program and a strong theater program, but they were both completely cut. Um, and so my music teacher at the time, who I had had through middle school, so I had someone different in elementary school, but the person I had in middle school had been moved up to the high school the previous year, but I didn't have her. And then I showed up the year everything was cut she called a meeting in the Papaginos across the street from the school and said, as you know, my high school position has been cut. I'm still teaching in the elementary schools, but I don't want your music education to end. So we're going to find places that are off school grounds outside of the school day, and you can't pay me. So we found churches and community centers, and we held auditions and ensembles there and I was very fortunate as a freshman especially a freshman soprano to make it into show choir which was a 16 member four in each part it was the most prestigious choral opportunity and we still had it and we rehearsed two nights a week in my parents basement because we had a big basement with a piano and the combo would come and everybody would come and they'd bring brownies and we'd hang out and do rehearsals that was the way we had show choir um, and so we continued to have a music education, but it was not sanctioned by the district. And we did things like mowed her lawn and took care of her niece and nephew and, you know, baked her cookies, did anything but pay her, um, you know, just as. Wow. Great. How fortunate you were that she was able to devote her time like that and say, you know what, this is important because she, you could either, I could imagine if I, if I was rift like that or if I was in a town or something happened yeah. like that I'd I'd be so ticked that I'd like I'll show you there won't be anything you know like or something like that you know I'd just be oh that's so maddening but she was like she obviously cared about her students and like hey let's do something that's that's great so when when did you realize you wanted to I'm assuming you went to college and majored in music no oh great to do that Let's hear that. Um, so anyway, you know, music was the center of my life as a human and socially. I was very active in drama club when that finally came back too. did a lot of theater and a lot of music. Things gradually got reinstated during my high school time, but it wasn't all full back. Even when I left senior year, it has since been reinstated there. 
And I'm still in touch with this music teacher who I credit as a very significant influence in my life. We are in touch on Facebook and recently um, my current job requires me to give a lot of keynote speeches and they want to know a little bit about you. So I asked her for, I didn't have pictures of me doing that stuff and my family didn't either. She had tons. She sent me programs and like dozens of photographs and so I, and photographs of her and me. And so I have those on my keynotes because she really, I believe, um, inspired all of my career stuff after that, which fast forward a bit, but my whole career has been about making sure that people who don't have opportunities to have music in their lives have music in their lives in a meaningful way. Um, no, my parents would not finance a music major. I wanted to major in music in college, but it was not, it was out of the question because um, I couldn't do it. Um, so my undergrad degree is in political philosophy from Harvard, and I did every extracurricular music thing possible. And in any elective, I took music classes, which were great. Um, so I would do everything from singing with groups there, but also gigging and doing a lot of musical theater. I did a ton of Gilbert and Sullivan um, did a lot of lead roles in those, but also just other original shows and other shows, um, which were really fun. And I, um, out of my own pocket, um, got voice lessons with a great teacher, actually. She was really good for me, um, outside of school. So I did music all the time, extracurricularly, and in the places where I could fit it as an elective, but did not major in music undergrad. And then... Um, had to get a job after college um, and worked as a paralegal in a law firm because I was considering being a lawyer. That lasted about two weeks once I got into the job. I liked the job, but I did not want to be a lawyer. Um, most of my friends from college are lawyers. Um, I knew I wanted to sing, so I went to the extension division at NEC to prepare to audition for NEC. And after two years of the extension division there, I auditioned for NEC, and NEC at the time would not accept someone as a graduate student without an undergrad in music. So I had to be get a second bachelor's, and I took mostly graduate-level courses and some undergraduate courses and came out of there with a second bachelor's degree in jazz voice performance, because by that time, I was singing a lot of standards, and I was also, I'd also gone into klezmer then. At, I was doing a lot of improvisation and jazz and klezmer. Um, so that's where the music major came from. And the interest in education came from some of it from my earlier experiences in this particular music teacher, for sure. But then also, I got really interested when I was um, at NEC, uh, I got really involved in as a TA for a lot of classes. I TA'd solfege, all different kinds of music theory, which I love music theory. I TA'd with Rand Blake in the contemporary improvisation department. I did a lot of TAing. And I realized that how people learn was really interesting to me. So that got me interested in education. And then I went to Harvard Grad School of Education for a master's and doctorate in education. So that's the short version. Oh, wow. But I feel very deeply connected to this particular music teacher and my high school time um, as a real turning point for me. Wow. I mean, that's, I did not know any of this about you. That's so, that's incredible. Wow. I, I, I feel like that's a very unique uh, 
path to becoming a music educator. Yeah. So then tell so so then tell me about your first music teaching job. So um, I had many different music teaching jobs. Um, some of so I, I think I probably started um, teaching at the college level. That's probably the first paid teaching I did. Yeah, other than like my own studio, um, I taught. Um, right after I finished an AC, they hired me to teach Soulfish. I taught Soulfish for seven years there. Um, loved it. Um, I also taught in a bunch of community music schools. I taught at Langy in their, what no longer exists anymore, but their Saturday prep division, which was very active when I was there. I directed the musicianship program there, so I designed and taught all of the music theory classes for those students. Um, and then I taught voice and music theory and beginning piano at a bunch of community music schools like um, Powers Music School in Belmont, a couple others. So I did a lot of that sort of thing. And then I started doing visiting artist stuff through Young Audiences of Massachusetts and New England Foundation for the Arts. And NEC also would send me out as a visiting artist. So I started um, partnering with classroom teachers and writing curriculum and writing units okay, let's all compose an opera together. And we wrote a unit and did it. That was super fun. And then I had the opportunity to co-found the Conservatory Lab Charter School. And we worked on that in 97 and 98. We got the charter in 98 and opened the school a year later in 99. Um, and there I supervised all the music teachers and taught K to started K to two, but eventually all the way to five music there. Um, and also interdisciplinary music at the charter school. So that's in terms of classroom everyday teaching. That's where that started. Wow. And so when did you become a full time faculty member at Boston Conservatory? So I was teaching at NEC at that time in the late 90s. Um, to early 2000s. And then in 2000, and I started my doctorate in 99, the same year Conservatory Lab opened. So I was working at Conservatory Lab, I was working at NEC, and I was getting my doctorate. And then in 2003, after that, like spring of 2003, I stopped working at NEC. Um, and what happened there was the provost who I loved sat me down and said, Rhoda, we love you here, but you're always going to be an adjunct because you don't have a master's or a doctorate in music theory. Um, so I understand you're getting your doctorate in education and that's awesome. We don't have a place for you as more than an adjunct. You know, we love you. Stay as long as you want. And I was like, okay, but you won't give me any more money. And they're like, no, that's your pay. And I'm like, all right, I'm going. Like seven years at the same pay and they couldn't do much for me. And in, I think it's changed um, probably for the better. But in those days, they were not kind to the adjuncts. The students were great and my colleagues were great. But the bureaucracy was kind of um, biased towards the people who were not adjuncts. That's a good way of putting it. So I stopped working there and I wanted to get my dissertation done anyway. And I worked at conservatory lab and worked on my dissertation. And... Um, in 2004, um, the Conservatory Lab had its first five-year review by the state, which was a big deal. I saw them through that. 
and I finished my doctorate. And I was like, this is a good time to make a transition. So I went on the academic job market. And at that time, there were three positions open in Boston. I didn't want to leave. Um, Tom, you'll appreciate it. I could not leave the Red Sox. It will not happen. Um, where they are is where I go. So um, even now, I know I'm really... Yeah, hey. I, I Believe me, I hang with the Celtics too, and that's a much better place to be right now. But uh, although I'm a little mad about some of the recent moves there, but uh, <laughs> the Red Sox um, are where my heart is, have been my whole life. So um, I wasn't going to leave Boston. There were three jobs open in Boston. I applied to all of them. There was a faculty position at BU, there was the chair of music education at Berkeley, and there was the chair of music education at Boston Conservatory. And my dear friend Cecil Adderley, who I've known forever and ever, um, was also applying to all three, and we kept comparing notes. Oh, have they called you yet? Oh, have they called you yet? Well, we were both finalists for Berkeley and, and, and the conservatory, and I got hired at the conservatory, and he got hired at Berkeley, which was great. Um, and it was really the right place for me at that time um, because my dissertation research was about how music teachers are both performers and teachers at the same time, whether they're outperforming or not, that, that, is, that being a musician is a part of your identity when you are a music teacher. And the programs that I was running and creating at Boston Conservatory were really about performance majors who made the decision later, either at junior year when they were undergrads or people who had already graduated and were making the decision in, for graduate school to become licensed music teachers. So um, it was a really good fit for me. And I started there in like February of 2004. So when you, the, what was the actual, the actual position title at Boston Conservatory? Chair of Music Education. Chair of Music Education. Okay. Yeah. So, and then when did you start the, the summer music education track or was that always a thing? Um, always the thing. So we built the program for working teachers with summer and evening classes. So that was in the design of these programs. To back up a little bit, before I got to Boston Conservatory, they used to have a more conventional undergraduate program. Um, and they noticed, this was a few years before um, they hired me, they noticed that the program was losing students that essentially people out of high school were not going to a conservatory to be a music educator. They were going to a university, and they were going to a conservatory to be a performer. And I give them a lot of credit because they could have just said, all right, then we're done with music education. But they didn't do that. And the president at that time, Richard Ortner, who um, I still miss, um, he passed away two and a half years ago, either two and a half or three and a half. Um, anyway, he was committed to having music education at the school. So they did a self-study and they brought in experts and they talked to all kinds of people and they figured out that what they needed to do was a grad program that people could get licensure either after having gotten a performance degree or like I said, for conservatory folks, and some of our best students did this track, in their junior year, they would add it, and so they'd get a bachelor's and a master's in five years. 
And so that, the outline of the program was always for working teachers and was always at the graduate level. Um, you know, they built it, the sort of outlines of it, got it approved by the state, and then hired, did a national search and hired me to take those programs and put them on the ground and run them. So it was always this idea of the intensive summer and then the fall and the spring being evenings. Oh, nice. Well, I can tell you, I remember one thing before I started teaching there, being a little nervous about that because I always thought, oh, I'm going to get these conservatory kids that have realized, ooh, it's a tough world out there. And, <laughs> you know, there's only so many bassoon slots in the world or, you know, it's hard to be that, to even get a second trumpet spot in a major symphony, whatever, you know. And then, so then, oh, I'm going to be teaching all these kids that really don't want to be there. So this is like their fallback. And I didn't get any of that at all. But maybe one student ever, but that was over like however many years I taught there, five or six. But I I was always impressed that it was none of that. Everybody was great. It was very intensive, but I thought it was a really great program that you made there. So that was excellent. Thank you. We worked hard on the student admissions process. We didn't, if someone, if it was clear that it was a fallback, we didn't accept them. I will say that, as is often the case, at that time, um, it was a second-class citizen status in the school. Um, So some of the performance majors didn't understand or value what we did. Some of the performance faculty were huge supporters and some of the foremost, you know, like Eli Epstein, for example, or Sharon Leventhal, like these are some of their, or like Lin Chang, some of their premier faculty members, they were right behind us and got it. But there were others who, um, you know, would advise us if a student expressed an interest, would advise them against it. We heard some of that. I'll never forget we had one student. I don't know if you had him. Jeff Griggs, did you have him? No. Might have been before your time. I think he was. So he was a percussionist at the conservatory and applied to do the five-year program. Um, and what he would say, he, he talked a lot about how some of his friends, you know, conservatory friends, undergrads, didn't understand why he was doing music ed. And what he would say all the time is, look, I want to serve the music. I love music. Everything I do is for music and helping other people to learn it and making it with people of all ages and communicating really well about it is a big part of that. And he ended up being one of our very best students. Um, I will never forget when he student taught. Um, he student taught at Bigelow Middle, Middle School in Newton, which um, is like less than a mile from my house. So I was his supervisor. And it was one of those things where literally, and it's so rare to see student teachers like this. I don't need to tell you this, Tom. He like walked in and owned it on day one. No tentativeness, no deference to the other teacher. It was, okay, these are my classes. These are my students. And he had tried everything as a middle schooler. So none of whatever they would try would you know, get by him. But it, it was one of those things where he owned it from moment one. He is now teaching at an international baccalaureate school in Japan, and has been for a good long time. Um, He was in Boston last summer for like 24 hours and texted me and said, can I see you? 
doing? I had the chance to hang out with him for a little bit. And, you know, he really has served the music as a music teacher, you know, ever since. And he still plays and he loves it. But he, he see, sees them as equal. And that's how he would talk about it. And I loved that. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty close, uh, you know, for a short, I feel like I was in it short in the compo- as compared to how long the program existed. But I, I'm friends with, I'm actually friendly and friends with a good handful or two of the people that went through the program. It's, uh, I really enjoyed it. Um, but then I want to say it was probably my last couple years there. You started, there was a separate program and it was about making music accessible to students with autism. I am, fix me if I'm wrong, but it's something along those lines. So that's the, um, early breeding ground of what is now the Institute for Accessible Arts Education that I run at Berkeley. Um, so in 2007, I started, uh, so I'll back up. We had all these great grad students and they would be with us year round. And some of them would be working teachers who needed the license. They were on a temporary license and they've already had classroom experience. Many of them did not. And I, back, going back now, we're connecting to my high school music teacher. I was very aware that there were a lot of places where there were young people who were not getting access to a music education. So I had students who needed experience, and I knew I could, could find young people, so we needed to make connections. So I had groups of students um, go one day a week to lots of different places. They went to a hospital. And they did music activities and classes with the people who happened to be in the hospital or the rehab center, wherever they would go. They went to homeless shelters. And we partnered with a school. It's no longer in this location, but it couldn't have been more convenient. It was in Kenmore Square. It was like a 10-minute walk. Um, a school just for kids with mostly learning disabilities, but different disabilities. They had no music program. And I knew about the school because one of my faculty colleagues who taught in another department at the conservatory, her son went there. So she hooked me up with the principal. We made this partnership. One day a week, a group of my students would go and they would just go to different groups of students and they'd prepare music classes. It was great experience for them. They'd try out all the things. And they loved all of these partnerships, but there was something really juicy about this one. They really felt like these were students who um, really had been forgotten by music education. And so that partnership was wildly successful, so much so like textbook. Um, at the end of that academic year, the school created a full-time music teacher position and hired one of my students who was graduating, which like... How great is that? And I know that that wow. position still exists. She's not in that job anymore, but that posi- and they're not in the same location, but that position still exists, which is awesome. So they, we were able to get them to have music. So that was my early experience of seeing firsthand some ways that music made a difference in the lives of people with disabilities. And it's long been written about, right, that you know, music teachers don't get training in how to teach anybody who doesn't learn a very particular way. And um, so there aren't opportunities. And a lot of times there's people with disabilities are excluded from different opportunities and so forth. So then um, I was approached by what was then a new foundation about starting 
um, just for people with autism, some private instrument lessons. So I started this in 2007, um, had graduate students, and I got them a lot of training and a lot of support. And we had like 12 people who played different instruments, all with autism, who came on Saturdays and had lessons. This took off and snowballed beyond belief. I started raising... So the conservatory loved this idea, and they said, go ahead and do it, and we'll give you this space on Saturdays, but we can't pay you, and we have no money. So we had to make it completely tuition-driven, and I got no money, but the money that came from tuition paid the teachers, paid our expenses, that sort of thing. And I immediately walked into the development office and said, we have to raise money because I can't have this be a program only for people who can afford a high tuition. So we immediately started raising money so that we could give tuition assistance so that by after one semester, we had an application process, I had funding, so that anyone who wanted to do this would not have to be excluded, that they could do it. And we've never, since 2007, turned a single person away. Um, And then... So and I just kept raising money for other programs. So we were having all these lessons. We would do a recital, and I would be itching to have something that was an ensemble because everything was solo, solo, solo. So I got money from the Mass Cultural Council to plan and then execute a chorus. I started with a chorus because you don't need to buy instruments. So I thought, okay, easy. Um, and it very successful continues to this day. Um, then I was getting all these calls from parents with really young children and I had nothing for them. So I applied to the National Endowment for the Arts and got a great grant to start a music class for little children. So this is how things sort of worked is that I would, um, see a need and build new classes and programs. And now, and so that, and I just kept raising money to do that. And now, you know, flashing forward to where we live now at Berkeley and we're an institute, I think at last count it's 16 music programs, two adaptive dance programs, and a theater program. And stuff happens on campus in person on Saturdays, but we also have a fully virtual arm, which we went fully virtual, completely virtual for the pandemic, but we realized we were reaching people way outside of Boston, people from all over the world. So we've kept a number of our programs virtual so that we can serve even more people. And it's like over 300 people a week in the various programs that we run. So oh, that's, yeah. that's incredible. What, so I just, if, if you had to give a, a, just a blanket, you know, for music teachers that are out there listening to this, that are like, Ooh, sometimes I'm struggling with my students with special needs. And, you know, it, every kid is different too, which is always, hundred you know, percent. so that's, you know, that's always a challenge and not, I love that challenge personally, and um, I always find it interesting to try and connect with those students. It is unbelievably, unbelievably rewarding. I, I can't okay. even, I, I'm sure I don't have to tell you, but if you had to to give some advice for some music teachers maybe listening to this, like what advice would you give to them? So I'm going to back up, but I'm going to answer your question. So while we've been doing all this direct service, Um, our teacher training really took off. So we have a whole professional development wing. We do an annual conference every April. We do an annual symposium every November. We have study groups. We just today learned we got funding for this coming year to offer free study groups, which is awesome. Um, We do consultations, um, single presentations, and also groups of workshops and presentations for school districts and organizations. So we do a lot of PD. 
And then we have master's, uh, a master's program and a graduate certificate that focus on accessible music education that I created in 2014. So those are the three things that we do, just to give a little more context. In terms of advice, so your biggest point is, um, just to say first, um, there's no recipe. So Autism Speaks says you've met one person with autism. You've met one person with autism. I like to say you've met one person with a disability or a diagnosis. You've met one person with a disability or a diagnosis. So people want a recipe. They want, oh, this is the diagnosis, then I do these four things. It's never that simple. And, Tom, you know this, what worked with a particular student on Monday, three days later, for reasons we cannot possibly predict, won't work. So it's, everything is a lot of trial and error. Having said that, I use a basketball metaphor to talk about um, some blanket advice. I call them high percentage strategies. So I don't need to explain this to you, but to your listeners, in basketball, statisticians um, keep track of, depending on where a player is on the court, if they shoot the ball, what percentage of the time will that ball go into the basket? And shots that happen more often are high percentage shots. And that tells the defense how to defend. Um, so some people are really good from the free throw line. Some people are really good very far away. Some people do this thing that I don't know how they do it, these shots from the corner where they're even with the basket but over on the side. I never will figure out how those go in, but some people, like the stroke, it just goes in, right? So when you know who's more likely to get a shot from where, it tells you as a statistician and as a coach how to defend. So I think of certain teaching strategies as high percentage strategies, meaning they are likely to be helpful for everyone in the room, whether you know what their background is, whether you're a visiting artist who cannot see IEPs, whether you have IEPs, doesn't matter, whether a student's diagnosed, undiagnosed, there are certain things. So I'll give you a couple. Um, one is structure and schedule. So... Um, most humans these days and a lot in schools are experiencing some form of anxiety. And when you have a disability or a diagnosis, that's often even more so the case because there's a lot of what am I going to fail at? What am I going to be told I can't do? What am I going to, um, am I going to be able to access this thing or that thing? Am I going to be standing out from my peers because of this, that, or the, it's very anxiety filled. So um, and a lot of teachers, a lot of schools require that agenda on the board. But I believe in what I call telegraphing that agenda on the board. So it's not enough just to list it all there, but to say, we just did this. Now we're going to do this. Oh, that was really great. I'm going to change the order of what we're going to do. So although this was written next, we're going to jump down too, because we're at a really good moment for that segue. So using the agenda and keeping structure a big part of the class. Um, that's what I call the microstructure. I also believe in what I call the macrostructure. So that the flow of things, generally speaking, is often the same. Not, I mean, obviously, right before the concert, the flow changes. But that, for example, um, generally, students come in, they put their instruments together, 
They go by there, they get all their materials, they sit down, there's a series of warm-ups, they do something really familiar, they do something they've been working on, they look at something new, they end with something that makes them feel successful, there's uh, some kind of closing ritual, maybe announcements or whatever, and then they put their instruments together and they leave. That basic flow, which you don't put on the board, but giving students a sense that things generally happen this way, helps with anxiety. Like I said, right before the concert, even right after the concert, that's going to change. But if generally speaking that happens, that's a good thing. So structure and schedule is number one. Number two, um, we all know that teaching with multiple modalities makes things stick. That we all, and the big three, you know, visual, auditory, and kinesthetic are the big three. I like to think about modalities even more broadly. I like to think about... um, other ways that people learn, but even we just stick with the big three, visual, auditory, and kinesthetic, that if you, that some people, most people gravitate towards one or the other, and you want to hit more than one because learning sticks better. But here's what I don't think people have thought about. Um, So all of our art forms are multimodal, but also all of our art forms have a modality that dominates. So music is very much multimodal, but Obviously, the auditory dominates. Arts teachers tend to privilege the modality that dominates their art form when they teach. We are musicians. We traffic in sound. We tend to be auditory. But that doesn't work for everybody. And I would argue that the most important modality, no matter what you are teaching, is the visual modality. And the reason for that is that if you have a visual of something, it sticks around it becomes a support. So the words you said, the thing you played is a moment in time. Yeah, you can record it and play it back, but it's not the same thing. It's a moment in time. The kinesthetic experience of doing something is a moment in time. You have the directions on a sheet, that sheet stays there. It's a support. If the student wasn't paying attention, it's right there. If the student um, has um, English is not their first language, the support is there. If the student was distracted, the support is there. If the student's short-term memory is lacking, the support is there. You get the idea. Having the visual support is so important because it is a modality and a support at the same time. So I'm always telling music teachers more visuals. I'll stop there. Hmm, Thank you. Um, So I noticed, I I saw on uh, Facebook recently, you've written a handful of articles, or at least a couple of articles recently. I've written dozens of articles and book chapters over the year. Yeah, so I guess maybe a question would be, if someone wanted to learn more, is do you know some place where they could go to learn more about this? About accessible music about, education? Yeah, accessible music education. So they need to go to our website, that which is college dot berkeley b-e-r-k-l-e-e dot e-d-u slash b as in boy i-a-a-e berkeley institute accessible arts education if you go there you'll see a home page where there's a professional development section so you can learn all about the all the different things that we offer in there we have a very active podcast of artists and arts educators with disabilities. 
Um, we have like 28 episodes now out. We have a blog with teaching resources. We have an online searchable database called the ABLE Arts Resource Center. ABLE for us stands for Arts Better the Lives of Everyone. Um, so we have an, the ABLE Arts Resource Center, which you can enter a keyword. You can say, I want to teach trumpet to fourth graders with ADHD and upcome resources. Wow. Lesson plans, books, chapters, articles, you name it. So, And we're going to be soliciting even more resources, but that's really cool. Um, we have what's called our digital learning series. There is a web page with literally you click and there are videos of workshops in all different topics um, that you can watch. Um, so... That, there's a lot of resources there that I think can help. Our conference, which is every April, is very much a hands-on, how do you do this for all art forms and all disabilities. Um, and I think that's a good place to get some resources. And these study groups. So we're going to be doing a, another accessible music education study group, which will probably be, um, they tend to be best attended when we do them in January February and March, it's over Zoom. You can participate synchronously or asynchronously. The funding we got yesterday means it's free. Um, and you can get PDPs for it. So um, that's something that you can learn about. We have a newsletter that we publish every month. If you're interested and you go to our website, you can sign up for the newsletter and learn more about that stuff. Wow, that's great, Rhoda. Thank you so much. Sure. Um, I really appreciate you uh, dealing with uh, my first ever technical difficulties while doing uh, this podcast. Um, Got to be a first time, right? But yes, yes. Uh, but uh, you are a real trooper, and I appreciate it. And I know you gotta you gotta go, so I'm gonna yeah. leave out my last two questions, which I usually ask people, but uh, it, they're not that big a deal because the main focus of why I wanted you on here was to talk about accessible arts education and you definitely gave us that and definitely gave us a place to go for anybody that wanted more information about this so i really appreciate it i appreciate you and uh thank you so much absolutely my pleasure tom and um, i'm happy to help any way i can so thank you and if people have questions or want to um, reach out to me, it's just my first initial followed immediately by my last name. So R. Bernard at Berkeley, that's L-E-E dot E-D-U. Yeah, two E's, not spelled like the stupid other school. Somewhere in California. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to the Everything Music Ed podcast. Be sure to check out future episodes as we talk to other educators from different teaching environments and cover areas of instruction such as concert band, jazz band, marching band, chorus, orchestra, general music, music tech, special needs, and much more. The theme music for the Everything Music Ed podcast is Jig, composed and arranged by Wally Minko. Jig is performed by Wayne Bergeron, and can be found on his album, Full Circle. The Everything Music Ed podcast logo was created by Sarah Goulart.